0: are in a study of Acts. So uh, if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, um, we're going to get into it. We have a lot of work to do today. We've got basically one whole chapter, uh, plus or minus a few verses to get through. Um, no exaggeration. Biggest chapter, in my opinion, in the entire book of Acts. So um, maybe you'll lean into that a little bit. Acts chapter 15. We'll have the text up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. From time to time in our lives, I don't think this is an exaggeration, I think every one of us in this room has found ourselves on the wrong side of an argument, right? Um, When you're young, you tend to argue about everything you know nothing about, not to judge too much, but when you get old, um, you, you either have more wisdom or you've lost the gas to argue about stuff, and so you just kind of let it go, I mean, you're just more easy going, those things dissipate a little bit faster, but I do think there are things that we should get riled up about. I don't care what age you are. I think things should matter to us, and what we're looking at today is an argument that the church had. Um, in fact, the text, I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating, in some of the phrasing that, the, uh, that Luke puts in here to describe what's going on, is it, it's a fight, not a fist fight. But a strong, strong argument about this issue. Now you're going to know why it's worth fighting for. In fact, if you want to title the sermon, we didn't, we didn't title it that, but I think a good one would be what we fight for. And uh, the argument was over. Can sinners be saved by God's grace alone? Now you see maybe um, if you've thought about that or read about that or know about that, you know why this discussion, this question is the pinnacle question. In fact, most most people... Most writers would call this chapter the mountain in the middle. It's the watershed moment for the church. It is the greatest, most important decision the church has ever had. If if it wasn't for their conclusion in chapter 15 that, that sinners can be saved by God's grace alone, we might have a different title for our church out front. It could be the first church of circumcision if it wasn't for chapter 15, okay? Really a big deal if you care about these things. So... Um, you remember, if, if you were here when we started our study of Acts, I told you that I have really no interest in doing a history lesson. I mean, history's good. I don't want to ignore it. But if all we do in, in our gleaning from Acts is go, wow, look what happened to them. That's so awesome that God worked and the Spirit was there. We, we described what was going on here with the early church, as sloppy as they were, as the, uh, this special, exceptional church. When God shows up and the Spirit moves, Crazy things happen. Good things happen. So we kind of, at least I did, I kind of made us agree together that we want to press into these texts and ask God to make us like them, to believe like them, to pray like them and trust like them and to move and witness like them and to give like them and to care like them to make us the exceptional church. You remember this? Yes, yeah, some of you do. It was a contract. We agreed, okay? Um, And we have, over the last several months, we've looked at amazing passages that talk about how God, through his spirit, through his people, can reconcile outsiders and bring them in and call them family. How it deals with uh, the power of prayer, to actually pray prayers the size of God and his ability in our life. To see the miraculous happen and healings happen and witness and take place and people coming to faith that you would never, ever consider coming to faith, and yet we believe. So let me add one more absolute to being the exceptional church. And here it is. The exceptional church actually believes something. And here it is. it is It believes in the grace of God alone. That's what it believes. And on that point, we will never move, God willing. And that statement is worth arguing about, I believe. I, I, we're going to try to read the whole thing in one run. Uh, I want to do that just so that you get context and you can kind of feel your way through the argument and the flow of, of what Luke is writing here. We're going to go back to chapter 14, verse 27, and pick up kind of where they are and why this issue has been ginned up for the church. So we'll read from there all the way to verse 35 or 15. So again, we'll have the text on the screen if you don't have it. Again, this is Paul and Barnabas. They are they are out doing their missionary journey and they're doing what they've been called to do and they're witnessing of Christ, the risen Savior, to people who have no idea about him and uh, God's moving. So here's what happens. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, argument, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, "It's necessary to circumcise them in order for them in order for them to keep the law of Moses." Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, these these Gentile believers, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as it related what signs and wonders God had done to them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are Who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to, have a, to, to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who, by the way, have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. Than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray together. God, this is your word, and there is no subject in all the scriptures that is more profound than you making a way for sinners by faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone. This pinnacle moment, God, sink it deep in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What God is doing at a time like this in the world is really mind blowing. God has spilled out over the edges of this Hebrew exclusive Yahweh and he is showing up in Gentile places, pagan places, places where they never had a concept of, of God. He is extending his grace, their lives are being changed and former godless people are now worshiping the one and true God, that's, that's what's happening. But you know this is true and it's always true and it's clearly true in this particular text. God's God's work and God's truth never ever goes unattacked and here comes the attack. Here comes the conflict. Verse 1 and verse 5 tell us of the conflict. It mentions two different people. One is just described in verse 1 as some men, and verse 5 is described as as believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, before I tell you what the conflict is about um, or describe it to you in more detail, let's just talk about these people so we get in their shoes and understand why it would be such a big issue to them. These uh, two groups of men could... Well, have two completely different agendas because we just don't know that some men of verse one could simply be Jews that are always resistant to Jesus no matter what. They could be total gospel, pers- you know, like these people that Jesus met that just resisted everything about him. They could be f- foot in the sand about every issue. But these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, these guys had a legitimate trust in Christ. They're described as believers in this text. And they had no doubt, because of that decision, made a clear-cut decision to leave or to suffer the consequences for that decision in in their culture. But even though they were, quote-unquote, new in Christ, as the text would say, they were no doubt still a, a major product of their upbringing, like all of us are. Listen to one writer describe kind of uh, how it would have felt like to be a young man growing up in that culture with that mindset. Here's what he said. Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training in Hebraism. His immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride at being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees studying the scriptures. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew into full manhood and earned the revered status of Pharisee and consider how he must have had a burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of the leader of Israel. Just imagine all this tradition, all this particular ancient way that they had owned, their whole whole life was wrapped up in it. Now picture that man encountering Jesus and the stress of encountering Jesus and what it did to his traditions. The decision to follow Christ meant that his parents and his family would consider him dead. It's over, man. That Pharisee thing, it's over. You climbed the religious ladder. You got to the place of being somebody. And now you're a nobody. Just imagine how hard it would have been for them. Just imagine how difficult it would have been to lay down all the stuff that came with being a Pharisee. Just lay it down and never think about it again. Well, all that stuff is the source of all this conflict in chapter 15 in the church. All those things, all the things of what it meant to be a Pharisee, what it meant to climb a ladder, to appease God, to satisfy him by your efforts, all that stuff still had little tentacles wrapped around the hearts of these believing Pharisees, okay? And so that's where this tension comes from. The text tells us what the tension is in verse 1 and verse 5. It's simply that. These men were suggesting be saved, trust in Jesus, and obey the law and be circumcised. It's both. Now, the wonderful message, the good news of God's grace was flooding into this Gentile world, and Paul and Barnabas were taking it everywhere, and the preaching was profound but simple. You sinner, No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what scars you have, you can come. You can come to Jesus and lay it all down. You just believe that he died in your place and he lives for your life. Just believe that and this exchange, your sin for his righteousness takes place. And by faith, through grace, you're safe. And they bought it and they believed in it. Salvation was grace alone through faith alone. But these Jewish believers just couldn't get there. Because that's just too easy. They they couldn't make their way there. There there had to be more. And what was required, and you've heard us use this statement before, was Jesus. Okay with Jesus. But the second sentence, what's messed it up? Jesus plus something. In their minds, the plus was the law. The plus was circumcision. Jesus plus something. That's the way they thought. In fact, the best way to understand the struggle for them is to know um, that in their minds, this whole Jesus thing was a Jewish thing. Where did it happen? Who was Jesus? How did I get converted? I believed all this Jewish law and past. Jesus was introduced to me. I trusted in Jesus. So the only way they knew to Jesus was to go through the law. You understand? So I, the way I'm converted is I believe in the law. I am circumcised. I trust in Jesus. What's good for me is good for you. That's all they could see. Be converted to Judaism first, then trust in Jesus according to their experience. And for them, Jesus was an addition to their traditions, not a subtraction. They just could not see letting it go. Are you, are you tracking with me? Everyone caught up to speed? Okay. Well, before we move on and get really massive judgmental, like how could they? I think it's good for us to stop and do an honest assessment, looking in the spiritual mirror, of our life and seeing if there's any Jesus plus issues in our life. Now, I, I'm i just going to say it. I think we all struggle with it, and it's subtle. Now, it might not be Jesus plus the Mosaic Law. I've yet to meet that person who wants to sign up for that. But but it could be something else. In fact, I, I'd like to suggest to you that the most predominant thought in the entire world, regardless of whatever religious conviction you have, is faith plus works equals righteousness. Every religious system in the world. And here's why. Because natural man, the true natural man thinks his problems aren't too big to solve himself. He thinks if he tries a little hard, harder, he gets a little bit more sincere. He goes to church. He prays. He does whatever list of things his particular bent tells him to do. I'm climbing the ladder to whatever God is there. So we've either shrunk our sins that they're not that bad or we've shrunk our God that he's not that holy. Either way, it's a bad conclusion. And everybody's got this issue. It's not a particular Catholic problem specific to them or Mormon problem or Hindu problem or Jehovah Witness problem or a Muslim problem. It's in mankind to think that his problems can be solved by himself. Let me just test you for a second and don't answer this out loud just in case you answer poorly. But just in your own mind, Jesus plus what? Jesus plus baptism? Jesus plus some theological distinctive that you figured out? When I was growing up, um, I was a part of a church, my dad's church. It was non-denominational, but it might as well had Baptists on the door because it had a list that came with going to that church of things you're not supposed to do. Good Christians don't. Ever had somebody introduce themselves to you that way? Got to dress a certain way. You have had to walk an aisle, raise a hand, sign a card, had a moment. Okay. If any of those questions or maybe what the Holy Spirit was even asking you right now makes you nervous and there's a possibility that you're struggling with the same error that was happening here in chapter 15 of Acts. And and by the way, just to be certain that we're clear about this, there's more than one way to mess up grace alone. It, clearly what you heard me say right there was m- my faith in Jesus plus works equals righteousness. According to the gospel, the good news is good news because you can't fix it and he fixed it for you. So by faith, it's free. But there's this other distortion, right? Um, and I, I'm gonna put it in the best possible case scenario. Like sincerely... Honestly trying to do it right. They've equated some places, have equated this idea of faith alone like this. Here's how the, the equation would look. Faith equals justification, void of works. And I think, to be fair, it comes from maybe a good place. Church is trying to understand and live out grace alone too. It's extreme, but in doing so, they create a Christian the Bible knows nothing about. A Christian who says, "I love Jesus." no change. And that person, church, doesn't exist. I know it's confusing. I know the people you've had conversations with, I have them too, and I know it can be confusing. But this person, the Christian who confesses faith in Jesus and showing absolutely no fruit, with no burden whatsoever to ask the question, is Jesus alive in me? Is he living? You you know a, a way we describe this is the heart of man is dead and unresponsive to the things of God. And what God has to do fundamentally to move us to grace is to change my heart, my want to, my compass, my affections. And when he does that, guess what happens to me? I go after what I want, and what I want is him. But to go so far as to say, no, you can have Jesus and never desire him, I don't, I don't think the Bible says that's true. So you hear things like, do you trust in Jesus? Did you pray a prayer? Did you walk that aisle? Hey, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're not following him. It doesn't matter that, that you continue to live like the world you came from. It doesn't matter that you even walk away. It doesn't matter. Do you have that card? Did somebody, did somebody send you that note when you got baptized so you know, like you're more anchored in your experience than God's statement of faith in you? Okay. If that is a perspective, then here's what we have to understand. Here's what they missed, that God's grace is a transforming grace. That's what it is. I I think this good news is good news because it truly is as simple as this, by faith alone in Christ alone and nothing else, okay? Nothing else. But God's grace fundamentally is defined in the scriptures as a new heart, isn't it? That's what God's grace does. It shows up and it says, this person thinks different and feels different. So it affects not only what we believe, but also how I behave. And here's the reality of why it looks different. It's because my affections have been realigned. Let me give you a silly illustration so you remember. When I was a young man, like really young man, 1967, I had the treasure. It was a bicycle, Okay. I love that bike, and it was, some of you will know what this was, it was a, it was a bike with a banana seat, yeah. ape hanger. yeah, yeah, ape hangers, <laughs> and a big sissy bar on it, and I love that bicycle, and I watched my dad take care of his cars, and, and he would wax them and work on them, so I'd get the tools out, and i oil it all up, and I'm waxing it, I loved it, I loved it, it was, this, it was like the goal of my affections, until 1974, guess what happened then? Yeah, a 1963 Ford pickup. That's what happened to the bike. A new affection. And nobody had to tell me to walk away from the bicycle. I just wanted the truck. Do you understand? That is a kind of a puny way to describe this magnificent heart change that God brings to his people. Fundamentally understand that the good news of God's grace by faith alone is that he takes out your stubborn, warring heart and he puts in it a new affection and you can't help yourself. I'm not saying to perfection, but you're going for it. Like, even in your lack of understanding, your ignorance, you, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to love? How am I supposed to give? Who am I supposed to serve? God, I got the Bible. I don't know what it says, but I want to hear from you. And you sit and you plow because your heart has been changed. A new affection. Brand new person. God's grace is a new heart and new hearts have new affections. So it isn't faith plus works because that's blasphemy. And it's not faith. Minus works. It's faith alone that produces an affection for God that you can't help do. It's the ultimate description of the treasure that Jesus told us about in the Gospels. The man found the treasure, sold everything they had to get it. It was not a requirement. He couldn't help himself. Okay. By the way... Paul, who is in this discussion in the early church, pens kind of his, and some would say, this complimentary text that's going right along with Acts and Galatians chapter, or Ephesians chapter two, by the way. And here, here, is, here is a text we're very familiar with, but I, my guess is we don't finish it. So let me put it in total and, and we'll see how you hear it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Amen, church? Come on, that wasn't good enough for people saved by grace. Okay. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? Okay, that's where most of us stop. All true, faith alone. Watch this. Watch his conclusion. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Both. Okay, so let's get back to the story. Here is, uh, here is the conflict we've seen and the conflicted that are part of it. Now let's look at the council in Jerusalem. Verses 6 to21 tells us this story, and particularly just to speed up it the story a little bit. There are four people who stand and talk that we know of, according to Luke. Um, those people are Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James that stand to give kind of a statement about this argument over, is it just really faith alone, or is it something more to it? Okay, I'm calling this the proof of grace alone And these apostles bring it The first one to speak is Peter He gives us four, the first one is this In verse 7 he says Look at the past Verse 7 he simply says Remember I came to you and I told you And what he's referring to is chapter 10 When Cornelius the Roman centurion Gave his life to Christ By grace alone And remember, remember when I came and told you About that specifically Peter says Your conclusion was this, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You've already stated this. You've already decided this. Just look at the past. You want proof for grace alone? Your proof for grace alone. Because when Cornelius came to faith, you recognized it for him. Without the law. Proof number two, verse eight, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles. That's what he says. Just like happened to them. The Holy Spirit broke out on them. They spoke in tongues and miraculous things were happening. They believed it was undeniable. Proof number three was the forgiveness of God that the Gentiles received. Verse 9, he, he says, um, having these people having been cleansed their hearts by faith. Again, referring to the past, a little history lesson for them. In verse 43 of chapter 10, when he is defining and describing to them the good news that the Gentiles have received, he says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on to say, and the Holy Spirit showed up to prove it and put his stamp on it, they have been forgiven. So just picture Peter's argument. Your history, because you've already determined it, the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And now this is the drop the mic moment for Peter. The last, the last argument he uses is the one in verses 10 through 11, and it is the failure of the law. Let me read it again. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. Peter's point was really simple. It's like, how, how could you try? Why would you try to saddle the Gentiles with a law that you can't keep and didn't save you? Look in the mirror. It was Jesus alone for you too. In fact, Paul in Galatians made it clear what that law was intended to do. He describes the law as a teacher or a tutor that's supposed to lead us to the understanding that I'm incapable of not sinning. That what I need day after day, moment after moment is God's superabounding grace. That's the only shot I have to cover over the things I cannot do. And even to make the things I do righteous acts before him. I need mercy. The law couldn't get us there. It's incapable of getting us there. It's interesting to me, as soon as he says this, and I just got to believe it happened in this sequence without much filler material. Verse 12, the whole assembly fell silent. I wish I was there. I like to think I'm a pretty good reader of faces, you know, when, when bells are going off and lights are coming on. But this is a truth, and it's it's a principle that's always true. When truth and conviction show up, people listen. Because you know who's in charge of that—the Holy Spirit. He teaches the truth like he's teaching it now, to a thousand people, thousand thousand different set of ears, and he's bringing conviction where he, when he wants. But when he does, people are quiet and they listen. Just like these people who are sitting there de- defending their position that it was Jesus plus something, the argument, the argument was done. But here we go. There's there's two more proofs of this grace alone that are brought by Barnabas and Paul and even James. Barnabas and Paul bring up the idea of signs and wonders. The miraculous is happening with these people. You know that story that all of you experienced in Jerusalem that that deaf people could hear and blind people could see and crippled people could walk and unbelieving, warring people could be broken and come by faith. That whole wonderful, miraculous signs and wonders, well, he's doing it over here too. You want proof? Just go look at the story. The very same things God's spirit is doing there. James steps to the plate and he offers the last proof that we see in this for the grace of God interesting. It's probably the most powerful one. He says, oh, and by the way, God's word says it. So I guess the argument's over. He quotes what would be to us an obscure passage from Amos, but simply says, I know I had a plan that all the Gentiles will come who I call. And nothing else is said by anybody else in response to, th- to these things. And in fact, I think it's interesting that James is the last to speak because possibly James is the strongest voice in all this, although I love Peter's argument. Um, but, but because of who James is, I think how he responds to this decision might have more weight in the church. James is the brother of Jesus. If anybody had a problem with trusting in Jesus alone, it might be the guy who slept in the upper bunk, Right? Could, could be him. Or, or what about this? James was known as being a ma- a, an extremely pious man, meaning a guy who really worked his faith. He was called old camel knees for a reason. He prayed incessantly. He worked. If there was religion activity that could get you to some kind of acceptance with God, I guess James, the bishop of the early church, the leader of the early church, who was known for his piety, he could say, hey, wait a minute, we're not throwing all my work out. I spend every day on my knees. He was the first to say, no, 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 it's over. This discussion's over. And he brings us to the conclusion. Look at verses 19 to 20. Here was his decision. Therefore, this is James, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Isn't it interesting that the word or the words that the Holy Spirit gave him to describe what it is to bear up under the law, he calls it trouble. Trouble but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from the things that have been strangled and from blood. That's what he says. So what they decide to do is send a letter back to those churches that had been infiltrated with these other men or these, these believing men of the Pharisee party who had kind of twisted this grace alone, wonderful, good news gospel to be grace of God through Jesus plus something to send them a letter saying, we're speaking for Jesus in the church. This is declared will of God for your life. And so they pen a letter and they send Paul and Barnabas and then two other leading men in in the town there, Judas and Silas in the church, so that everyone knew they were representing the truth. Undeniable. We're speaking for the Lord now so you can can be free based on what we're about to tell you. And so the guts of the entire instruction is in two verses in, in verse 28 and 29. Okay? It's interesting to me, by the way, this is a side point. I sit in a lot of meetings. I, I'm not a meeting guy. I don't like meetings. They go way too long for me. And typically, our response to meetings that are really important is a lot of talk and a lot of writing. Um, it's interesting to me, the most significant decision the church has ever made has boiled down to two sentences. So, so <laughs> either they didn't write enough or we write too much. I don't know which it is. But um, two sentences versus... 28 and 29, here's what he says to that church, to those Gentile believers. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. Pretty simple? Now, I kind of broke this one little statement down um, and I think what James is doing is basically getting at what grace looks like. I want you to know grace because we've, so, we've told you it's grace alone and Christ alone. So let me tell you about it. Let me repunctuate this section of scripture so you know how it really reads in the original. In verse 28, this is how it reads. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you. No, not even one greater burden, period. That's the story of Jesus alone, by faith alone, grace alone. That's it. No greater burden, not even one other burden but that. That's what he says. And then he adds this wonderful thing. That this, this had to be ringing in their ears, okay? So if, so if you were one of the, the Jewish leaders who had thought that your efforts and your religion were somehow making God smile bigger at you, just imagine what they hear. Not your traditions. Not your opinions. Not your preferences. Not all those things you want to get together for and identify each other for. It's Jesus plus nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's what they heard. Completely good news, right? And in this amazing response that Once we get Jesus, and Jesus alone determines what it means to be a good Christian, not all that other stuff, okay? To tell somebody there's more than Christ alone is bad news for them, and it's hell on the church. I just want you to know that. That's why chapter 15 stands out as a monument to God's defense for how you and I and every man who's ever been saved comes to faith, grace. That's it. It's interesting how he ends, because if you're honest and you just read this, you struggle with verse 29 a little bit, because you get all excited about grace alone, and you go, wait a minute, what is he throwing down all these laws for at the end? He's wrapping up with a bunch of legalism, it seems like, but you have to understand his context. These particular four instructions have to do with idolatry and uncleanliness and and false worship. So, So... As soon as James declares for the Gentile audience, nothing, not law, not Judaism, nothing is added, not circumcision is added to your salvation, nothing else but Jesus alone. He begins to think about the Jewish brothers who through their tradition and through their upbringing are tripping over the hurdles of law. And Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. And so what James brings right after, he says, it's grace alone. He says, but watch this. The treasure of God's grace frees you from being selfish people to do whatever you want to do. Because now you're going to consider the Jewish person who thinks that these sacrifices to the idols are wrong that somehow eating or drinking blood or eating animals didn't get drained, that that's somehow an unclean thing. Those things don't make it unclean. Most writers would suggest that sexual morality had to do with the temple prostitution to false gods in the Gentile places. Now, clearly, it's a moral issue as, as well. But if you take it in context of what he's saying, he goes, listen, this is how your Hebrew brothers are gonna trip over your freedoms. So here's what I want you to do. With grace that you have received... Limit your freedoms for the sake of your brothers. Love other people. Just because you can eat meat sacrificed to idols, just because you can have an animal without the blood drained it, doesn't mean you should do it and rub it in their nose because they're tripping over these things. Does that make sense? Come on, shake your head if it makes sense. Okay, so here's the point of this wonderful good news. It's both and, and that's the way we always define this pursuit of God in our our lives. I feel like in the past, to be honest, I've lived this passage. Maybe you have too. Verse 4 and 5 are where I feel very familiar in in my life. When these people came to Jerusalem and they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, declaring all the good news that God had done. Stop. You would think people just jump in there and start partying. This is good news. Verse 5, but some of the believers, some of the believers had a problem with it. Now, I have been in both sides of this argument. God was doing something amazing, and I was spending my time judging it. And I've been a place where I'm trying to tell people God's doing something amazing, and I've felt judged by others. I want you to see this morning how amazing and wonderful, and awesome the grace of God is. And that the grace of God is our only hope. That God would give to us what we cannot earn on our own and set us free. And here's the, the great part of that freedom. The freedom through the grace of God frees us from the crisis of God and it frees us from the crisis of us. The crisis of God, he's holy, he's just, he's a perfect judge. If you wanna go it on your own, if you really don't want grace alone, if you want to try to work your way to God, if you want your righteous deeds to merit some attention from God, well, I'll tell you what kind of attention you'll get from God. Judgment. So grace freezes from the crisis of God, and it freezes from the crisis of me. I'm stuck on self until God gives me some other treasure to love more than me, right? I, this is the wonderful truth of what we say all the time. What's the greatest commandment? Love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how do you do it? Love your neighbors yourself. It's always that story. It's the always, it's always the same conclusion. Grace frees me from fixing my own problem because I can't, and it frees me from worrying about making myself happy. I live for his joy. Amen. I can serve other people. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this passage, this amazing moment in the church's history where they defended. you died to give us freedom freedom from your judgment freedom from trying to measure up freedom from the worry of everyday wondering if we've done enough freedom from the tyranny of religion you've set us free from condemnation but you've also set us free from having to live for just ourselves that we can truly, truly be you in this world to love other people, to consider other people more important than ourselves, to willingly give up our freedoms for the sake of others. God, there is no way any of this is possible without the miracle of the good news. So God, we wanna be the exceptional church. Continue to do the work you do to save sinners by grace and to transform them into people who love like you. We pray in Christ's name.